good to be with you, church. My name is Halim Suh. I serve as one of the pastors and elders here at the Stone. We've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, and this is the third week that we're going to be in a section of scriptures today in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul is addressing sexual sins. Well, as we've talked about before, the book of Ephesians, very simply put, it's divided up into two different, two major sections. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 describes everything that God has done. Everything that God has done in order to make us his people. Not everything that we've done in order to make ourselves his people. That would be impossible but everything that he has done in order to make us his. And then starting in chapter 4, throughout the rest of the book, there's a transition. There's a transition from describing everything that God has done into instructing us on everything that we need to do in light of everything that God has done. Paul is instructing us on how to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. And so starting in chapter 4... He tells us things like, don't lie anymore, but start telling the truth. He starts saying things like, don't steal anymore, but make sure you're working so that you might have something to share. He says things like, don't be angry and bitter towards one another, but forgive each other and be reconciled to one another. Why? In light of everything that God has done for you. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, he begins to address our sexuality. What God is showing us is that there ought to be no place where God, God's gospel is off limits, right? There ought to be no place in our lives where we say, God, okay, from here to here, you could have your say, you could have your way, but over here, this is off limits. The gospel ought to speak into and address our entire life, including our sexuality. Either he is God or he's not. He's God or he's not. Now you have to get the order right also. You have to get the order right. It's Ephesians 1 through 3 first, and then Ephesians 4 through 6. It's what God has done first, and then what we are to do in light of what he has done. We get the order wrong sometimes, don't we? We think that Christianity is doing all these right things, and then God looking down and deciding to save us or not, whether based upon whether we did well enough. But that is the very opposite of Christianity. That is the very opposite of the gospel. The gospel tells us God chose you first. The gospel tells us God forgave you first. He embraced you first. He made you his children first. And then in light of who you are, and then in light of what he has done, and then he instructs us on how we can live in such a way that most properly reflects what he has done. And then he instructs us on how we can most properly reflect who we now are in Jesus. And so who is Ephesians 4 through 6 for? Who is Ephesians 4 through 6 for? It's for the people that have experienced Ephesians 1 through 3. Ephesians 4 through 6, 4, 4 through 6 is for believers. It's for the church. It's for us. The sexual sin series, it's for believers. It's for us. It's for the church. 
Very quickly, we need to realize that many times as Christians, we're fighting the wrong battle in this world. We're trying to preach Ephesians 4 through 6 to a people who've never experienced Ephesians 1 through 3. We're trying to convict and judge unbelievers of the sexual immorality that they're living in. But living a sexually moral life is not their primary need. Jesus is their primary need. Ephesians 1 through 3 is their primary need. What the world needs first and foremost, what they desperately need, is not instruction on how to clean up all their filth so that they can work their way up back to God. But what they desperately need to know is of a God who has come down to them in the very midst of their sins, in the very midst of their shame and brokenness, and offers forgiveness still, and offers grace still, and offers salvation still. Fighting sin is a distinctly Christian activity. Unbelievers can't do it. Obeying Ephesians 4 through 6 is impossible unless you've experienced the power of Ephesians 1 through 3. And so what the world needs first and foremost are not the demands and instructions of Ephesians 4 through 6, but the good news of Ephesians 1 through 3. Now, all that is just an just a introduction and a preparation as we continue on in this sexual sin series. Because Ephesians 4 through 6, this sexual sin series is for us. It is for us. It's for the church. How do we live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called? Today, I want us to look at Ephesians chapter 5 again. And I want us to ask three questions. Number one, what is the fight for sexual purity? What is the fight for sexual purity? Number two, why do we fight for sexual purity? Why? And number three, how do we fight for sexual purity? What, why, and how? What is the fight for sexual purity? Let's read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetousness, who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So what is the fight for sexual purity? We're being called to fight against six things in regards to sexual purity. Number one, we're being called to fight against sexual immorality. It's the term porneia in the Greek, which covers a wide range of sexual sins, but in the New Testament is used most commonly to refer to sex before marriage, premarital sex. I hear sometimes that the Bible doesn't speak against premarital sex. Yes, it does. Number two, all impurity. This specifically has in mind all the sexual sins that can happen when we give up God's original intent and design and we distort it and we pervert it. Number three, covetousness. This means a strong, inordinate craving, an inability to be content and satisfied with what you currently have. And then for the sake of time, let's lump the next three together. Filthy talk, foolish talk, Crude joking. This basically has in mind two ways of speaking. First is the notion that you are so filthy inside that you can just about turn anything into a sexual innuendo. 
That you are so filthy inside that you're driven by something so filthy inside that you can just about turn anything into sexual talk. And the second notion is that your words are foolish or it's empty and crude. That your view of sex is it's so superficial. That view of grand realities that God's created, you make out to be so superficial and trivial that you say things like, you know, sex is just coming together of two pieces of flesh. Now, sex is just coming together of two bodies. It doesn't really mean anything. It has no real significance. And so as Christians, this is what we are called to fight against. These are the sexual sins of our old self. Remember that language of Ephesians chapter 4? These are the sexual sins of our old self that we're being called to put off. Paul takes it all the way down to the speech level. And says, let these things not even be named among you. You know, as we've been talking about sexual sins in the last two weeks, it's been evident that there's a group that's, that's deeply convicted. Right? I wonder if that's some of you. And the reason why you feel such conviction is because you're engaged in some sexual relationship. You're engaged in some sexual act that you know you shouldn't be in. But it's also been evident that there's another group And you may not be engaged in some sexual act per se. You may not be committing adultery. You may not be looking at pornography. And so you just kind of let yourself off the hook. But this is where it's so important for us to see that Paul takes sexual sins all the way down to the speech level. And in doing so, he takes it all the way down to the heart level. Because Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth will speak. That our words are indicators of the condition of our hearts. I'm in the second group. The, the last two weeks, as we've been talking about this series, I thought, you know, these ser- this sermon series is something that's really good for our church to hear. But I thought, but for me personally, that I thought I was doing pretty good. I, I'm being faithful to my wife. I'm not looking at pornography. But as I look deeper into the text, the Holy Spirit just absolutely messed me up. He did this week. He just absolutely messed me up because he, he, he pointed out two things. First of all, that the sexual purity that I did have, I was crediting to myself, my self-control, my self-discipline, not God's grace. That's why I was being so quick to judge others when they would fall. And the second thing is that he was pointing out my speech, my words, that I was so loose with my words sometimes, so loose with my joking sometimes, words and jokes that if you heard, you'd be ashamed to call me your pastor. And so he was pointing out these things in my life and he completely broke me over the fact that I would laugh at sexual innuendos that were told on TV shows and movies. It's the epitome of foolish and empty talk when we take the things that break the heart of our God and we trivialize it and we just laugh at it. And so, church, this week, I felt the level of holiness that our God is actually calling us to. And I pray that you would feel it as well. As Ephesians 1.4 tells us that God chose us in him before the foundations of the world. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless. So that we would be holy and and blameless. Holiness and blamelessness is what he's calling us to, even down to our speech, the words that we say, down to our heart level. Now, some of you might be asking, don't you think that's being a bit heavy-handed? 
You know, as long as we're not just committing sexual acts of sin, why is it a big deal if we just joke about it and laugh about it? Why is that a big deal? We're not really hurting anyone. I felt that too. As as God was convicting me of the jokes and and the words that I would use, the sad part was that I was thinking about, okay, I'm going to be that guy now that people have to watch their language around. I can't just hang out with my friends now and just laugh and have a good time. The conclusion I kept coming to was, if I obey, I'll be missing out. If I obey, I'll be missing out. I wonder if you've been feeling that as God's been pointing out some sin in your life. If I obey, I'll be missing out. But that's the oldest trick in the book. That's literally the oldest trick in the book. The way that Satan got Adam and Eve to disobey God was pointing out, if you obey, you'll be missing out. You won't be like God. So church, we also have to realize that there's an attack on our words. Why are words so serious? There's an attack on our words. Every day the enemy is looking to make our words coarse, empty, foolish. What's the big deal with words? James tells us, the book of James tells us that we are led by our words. That we are led by our words. He says our tongue is like a rudder, such a small part, but it steers the whole ship. And so you may not find yourself engaging in some sexual act of sin, but because of the condition of your heart, because of the way that you're joking about it, because of the looseness of your words, you might be steering yourself right into those sexual acts. Why attack our words? Because our God loves words. Because our God loves words. The first act of God's mercy and grace towards us was that he spoke. That our God is not a God who keeps silent, but he spoke. He spoke words to reveal himself, didn't he? John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the word. What about us? 1 Peter 2.9 tells us, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We are a people that are set apart to proclaim his excellencies. With what? With words. So don't take this lightly. Don't fall short of understanding the fullness of the sexual purity and holiness and blamelessness that our God is calling us to. Don't take the command to be sexually pure even to our words as something that's bonus or an extra or icing on the cake. We praise our God with our words. We sing to him with our words. We tell the world about him with our words. And so to make our words foolish and empty and crude is going to be one of the most concentrated attacks of the enemy. So the first question, what is the fight for sexual purity? It is the fight for sexual purity, holiness, blamelessness, all the way down to our words, all the way down to our hearts. Not just the acts, but all the way down into our hearts. Our God is always after our hearts. Second question. Why do we fight for sexual purity? Let's look at verses 6 and six through 8. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. 
Why do we fight for sexual purity? This is going to be a very quick point because this is basically the point of Matt's sermon last week. We fight against sexual sins because it's not who we are anymore. Very simply put, it's not who we are anymore. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Before Jesus, you weren't just in darkness, you were darkness. It was your identity, it was who you were, but now your identity has been changed. And so now you are light, you are light. Darkness is not who you are anymore. That's why when you go after sexual sins, because you think it will bring some delight, you think it will make you happy, and it might. It might for a little while, but what does it eventually do? Eventually, you're sitting around miserable, right? Eventually, you're sitting around miserable. Why? Because it's just not who you are anymore. God's changed your identity, and he's, and he's made it so that you just simply cannot enduringly find satisfaction in sin and sexual sins anymore. And so the third question, talked about the what and the why, but how? How do we fight for sexual purity? Honestly, as I studied this text, and as I saw the answer that Paul was giving, how do we fight for sexual purity, it just blew my mind. It just, it just blew my mind. I'm a pastor, but still I'm just a dude. I'm just a dude. Please don't look at the people on stage at a level where you can't see us as people anymore. We're just people. And and because I'm just a guy, I've struggled with sexual sins like many of you. And so because of that, I've listened to lots of sermons. I've read lots of books on the topic, but, but maybe I just missed it. But I've just never seen the answer that Paul is going to give in Ephesians 5 on how to fight for sexual purity. I feel like I've heard lots of strategies on fighting sexual sins. And they're all good. It's all biblical. I don't, I don't think for some reason I've ever seen this one. If I say it, you, you might just hear it and go, well, duh, and you call yourself a pastor. But that's, that's the beauty of God's word, isn't it? It's, it's living and it's active. And sometimes when you go to God's word, the Holy Spirit enables you to see something that you've never seen before or allows you to see afresh something that you've seen a hundred times before. That's what happened to me this week. Okay, you ready? You're like Spillilla already. Uh, verse three. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, but instead, let there be what? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. But instead, instead let there be thanksgiving. Out of everything that Paul could have said in saying let there be, he, he picks Thanksgiving. Would you have picked Thanksgiving to be the opposite of all of these sexual sins? At first read, I thought to myself, what has Thanksgiving got to do with anything? What does Thanksgiving have to do with fighting for sexual purity? But the more I looked at it, the more I realized it has absolutely everything to do with fighting for sexual purity. The other word that I want you to see in verse 3 is the word covetousness. Covetousness. That's another word that I thought was strange. Sexual immorality... I understand. All impurity, I see why that's in there. But what does covetousness have to do with sexual purity? 
The word covetousness, as we mentioned before, means a strong, inordinate craving, an inability to be content and satisfied with, your current, with what you currently have, typically in relation to money, but here it's in relation to sex. So, you see, when we sexually sin, it's not simply because of sexual immorality. We sin sexually when there's sexual immorality plus covetousness. When there's sexual immorality plus covetousness. It's not just the existence of all the possible sexual acts of sin that's causing us to sin, right? We don't just go and do those things because it's out there and we can. It's the fact that we're coveting it. We are craving and desiring something that's outside of what God's will for us is. You physically or you emotionally commit adultery when you are coveting or craving something that is beyond what God has provided for you in your husband or in your wife. Wives, you're saying, God, I'm not satisfied. I'm not happy with the husband that you've given me. I'm not happy with him. He, he doesn't notice me. He doesn't see me. He acts as, he, it's as if I'm not even here. But this other guy, he compliments me. He notices little things about me. We have real conversations, and he just makes me feel good. Husbands, you're saying, God, I'm not happy. I'm not satisfied with the wife that you've given me. I'm just not attracted to her the way that I used to be. She doesn't admire me anymore. I don't even think she likes me anymore. But this girl at work, she's so attractive. And she looks up to me. She appreciates me for who I am rather than just what I can do. You go look at pornography, again, not simply because pornography exists and it's out there and you can, but because you are coveting or craving some sexual experience or knowledge that God has intended for you to have only within the beautiful covenant of marriage. Singles, you are engaging in premarital sex, again, because you're coveting or craving something that is beyond what God has provided for you right now. You're saying, I want to know somebody in that kind of intimate and amazing way. And God, I know you created sex for marriage, but I've asked you. I've asked you for a husband. I've asked you for a wife, and you just haven't given me one, right? And so if I'm going to be happy in this world, I I can't wait for you any longer, God. I have to take life matters into my own hands. I'm sorry, God, I just have to do it. And so why do we sin sexually? Where are all of these sexual sins rooted? It's rooted in covetousness. It's rooted in our hearts. It's a heart issue, remember? The craving and desiring and taking for ourselves the things that God has not willed for us to have right now and maybe not ever. Okay, so if all sexual sins are ultimately driven by covetousness, then it becomes clear that the way to fight for sexual purity is to fight against our covetousness. And what is the opposite of covetousness? Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the opposite of covetousness. Thankfulness is what you feel when you believe that God is for you and that he's not withholding anything good from you. And that Thanksgiving says, in God, I have all that is good for me. And I refuse to be driven to defame the holiness of my God in order to experience some few sexual sensations. And when we get to the end of this section, addressing sexual purity in Ephesians 5, 
Paul elaborates on how to express the thanksgiving. Verses 19 through 20. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is urging us to work out our thanksgiving all the way out into words, all the way out into singing. He's saying don't just stop at thinking about how thankful you are. Don't just stop at just thinking about how thankful you ought to be. Don't just settle for some kind of state of thankfulness, but work it out. Work it out actually into words. Speak to one another about how thankful you are to God. Sing to him at Thanksgiving. Why? Because when we actually drive our Thanksgiving, work out our Thanksgiving all the way out into singing, when we actually start singing Thanksgiving to him, Something happens on the inside. Our emotions actually begin to change. Have you guys experienced that as we sing together? Your cravings, your desires actually begin to change. It's as if we are waking up, right? Man, these desires, these cravings that was driving me before, why did I desire them? Your cravings, your desires actually begin to change when you sing to him. And when we work out our thanksgiving out all the way into song, it becomes evident that thanksgiving isn't just the right theological answer in how to fight for sexual purity, but it is an unbelievably practical answer as well. Let me explain why. There are things in this world that are so at odds with one another. There are things in this world that are so contrary to one another that it cannot coexist. There are things that are so odd, so, at, so contrary that if they come together, one will completely quench the other. For instance, young married people, you have a newborn in your house, six weeks old. And if you're a young married couple with six-week-old baby, you know what I'm talking about. That's the magic line. Six weeks old, you're about to come together for the first time in a long time, right? The doctor's giving you a thumbs up. You're so excited, at least the husband is, so excited. Business time conditions are perfect, right? And inevitably, what happens? Inevitably, what happens? Your baby starts crying. And that pitch of that shriek of your baby crying stands in such odds and in contrary to your craving, no matter how strong your craving, it just quenches that craving, right? It happens. There are things that are so at odds and contrary to one another that it cannot coexist. There are also things in this world that are so much better than the other thing that it's just not worth comparing. There are also two things in this world where one thing is so much better than the other thing that it's just not even worth comparing. For instance, you might feel like you're addicted to pornography, You're saying, but you don't understand the feeling, the craving, the desire. It just absolutely dominates me. I just can't help myself. But let's say one quiet evening you're looking at pornography. And then all of a sudden, you you hear somebody breaking into your house. What do you do? What do you do? Do you just keep looking at pornography saying, you know, this desire, this craving, it just drives me. I can't help myself. I've got to keep looking. No, what do you do? You get up. You turn away. Why? Why? Because your desire for safety, because your love 
for the preservation of your life is so much greater than your desire, your craving for your pornography. That's why. Because you desire something so much more. So, already we see these realities that already exist in this world. And what Ephesians 5 is telling us is that that's what thanksgiving is. That's what thanksgiving is. It's saying, first of all, that thanksgiving and sexual immorality, sexual sins, are in such contrast to one another. They are at so, so much odds to one another that it cannot coexist. They cannot coexist. And that in thanksgiving, you are turning your eyes and considering eternal realities that are so much greater than the temporal satisfactions found in sexual sins that it's just not even worth comparing. And that's what makes Thanksgiving not just a theologically correct weapon in fighting for sexual purity, but such an incredibly practical weapon as well. Because, because I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if you're a believer and you feel that craving to go look at pornography, but you pause and you pull out your weapon of Thanksgiving and you actually start singing to Jesus... You actually start singing and praising him how Jesus is better. Make my heart believe. I guarantee you, if you are a believer, as long as you are singing to him, you will not look at pornography. It will be impossible for you. It will be impossible. The fruit of thanksgiving is that if you are a believer, very practically speaking, if you're doing it, it makes sexual immorality impossible. Do you see why thanksgiving is the answer to the how. Do you see why all of this, all over the scripture, God is commanding us to praise him, to sing songs to him over and over and over again. Thanksgiving, to fight sexual sins. Now it makes all the sense in the world, doesn't it? But even though it makes sense, it's actually really, really difficult to do. Even though it makes sense, it's actually really, really difficult to do. Why? Why is Thanksgiving so difficult? It's difficult because when we look at our present circumstances, honestly, many times we're just not that thankful. We're just not that thankful. Like we talked about before, you're looking at your husband and your wife. You're not happy. You're not satisfied. Single is you're desperately lonely. You're not thankful. That's why you're craving. That's why you're desiring and falling into sexual sins. And so to tell you, okay, just be thankful, it's just not helpful. It's just not that helpful. But hopefully this will help you. Right now, you just can't get your eyes off your present circumstances that you're so discontent with. Offering God thanksgiving for your present circumstances seems impossible. And so, let's not start there. Let's not start there. The Bible tells us that we can give thanks to God in three different ways. For the past, for what he has done. For the present, what he is doing. And for the future, what he will do. And so, Christian, turn your eyes away from your present circumstance and look to the past. Way into the past. Before the foundations of the world kind of passed. Did you know at that point in time God had you in mind? That the Bible tells us before the foundations of the world, he chose you. He chose you before the foundations of the world. And then at another point in history, he had you in mind again when he formed and shaped you in your mother's womb. That's why you're here. That's why you're alive. That's why you're breathing. Because at a point in the past in history, he had you in mind. He formed and shaped you in your mother's womb. Fearfully and wonderfully did he make you. 
And even though presently you're discontent, even though presently you have a complaining heart, that's perhaps led you into coveting and desiring and craving into some sexual acts of sin. But as Matt talked about last week, why are you being invited to return to a God who is a father who's waiting for you with open arms? How can you be sure? Why are you being invited to a father who, is, who has open arms, not crossed arms, waiting to lecture you? How can you return to a God that you know for sure will not pour out his wrath on you? How can you be sure? How do you know that you're being called to return to a father who's looking out into the distance, just waiting for the first hint, first sign of your repentance, so he could run after you, so that he could embrace you, put his robe on you, put his ring on you? How can you be sure? Because at another point in history and time, he sent his son. He sent his son, Jesus, and on the cross, God poured out all of his wrath that you and I deserved. Every single drop of God's wrath that you and I deserved was poured out on Jesus. There is no more wrath left over for you. And so, if you're looking at your present circumstances as you find it impossible to be thankful, look to the past and be thankful. But as if that wasn't enough, we can look to the future Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. What Paul is saying is that there's a day coming in the future that will be so glorious that will make our present sufferings in this world not even worth mentioning, not even worth talking about, not even worth comparing. Revelations 21.4 tells us of a day when our King Jesus will return. Did you know that? Did you forget? Our King Jesus is returning one day and he promises to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If you're looking at your present circumstances and having a hard time being thankful, no Christian that you have in God who has offered you an irrevocable past and an incomparable, unshakable future, get your eyes off your present, look to the past, look to the future, you can absolutely be thankful. You can be thankful. But here's the thing. When you turn your eyes from your discontentment of the present and look to a God who has given you such a glorious past and an incomparable future, it makes you realize that you can trust him for your present too. You can trust him for your present as well. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks. When? Always. And for what? And for everything. Giving thanks when? Always. Not just for the past, not just for the future, but for our present. Giving thanks for what? For everything. Not just for the things that you think are good, not just for the things that you agree with, but even for the things that you can't imagine how they're possibly good. Why? Because God promises that he will work out everything. Everything for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. After all, the cross, the cross of Jesus as he's dying, what did that look like for those who loved him most? It looked like disaster. 
They couldn't imagine anything worse happening. Here was this person. They placed all their hopes, all their dreams, right? And what was happening to him? He was being killed. They were reading it as disaster. They couldn't imagine how in the world it could be good. But what was God doing? He was saving them. He was saving them. You can give God thanks for everything, even for the things that you can't imagine how it's going to be worked out for your good, because you can trust that he knows, and he's working everything for the good of those who love him. Give thanks always and for everything. If our God was sovereign and trustworthy in the past, was he? Was he sovereign and trustworthy in the past? And if we could look to the future and we could say our God will be sovereign and trustworthy in the future, then we can say, God, I trust that you are sovereign and trustworthy in this present right now, no matter what I'm going through. And so let's apply this truth right now, beginning right now. Let's pray a prayer of thanksgiving to him with our words. Let's sing a song of thanksgiving to him with our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you. Even the words seem so dim and inadequate compared to the eternal realities of our past, our present, and our future. Father, forgive us in all the ways that we are doubting your goodness, in all the ways that we have taken for ourselves our own cravings and desires that are driven by our discontentment with what you have given us. You are God. You are good. You are God. We do not belong to ourselves. We belong to you. You not only have the power to give and take, but you have the wisdom to know what's best. And so help us to trust in your wisdom, God. And Father, because of the work of your Son, will you do the work of making us, your church, a people who are holy and blameless. Father, will you make the Austin Stone a a body where sexual morality, impurity, covetousness, Filthy talk, foolish talk, empty speech may not even be named among us. We can't do it. Father, we ask that you would do it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.